0: My name is Brett McCracken, and this is my wife, Kira. We're from Southlands Church in Southern California, and we were were asked to give a breakout on discipleship and millennials, which is a granted very big topic. We only have about an hour, so we're going to try to cover as much ground as we can based on our experience discipling millennials, and we'll see how much we can get through. So... First, we need to kind of define and understand who millennials are. It's kind of a term that these days is thrown around as a generic term for any young person. In fact, a few weeks ago, Alan Frau, some of you might know him, he's our lead elder at Southlands. He was uh, giving a sermon on David and was, he was talking about how David was 15 years old and something happened in his life. He was like, you know David, 15, he was a millennial. And <laughs> Kira and I were like, um, no, I don't think so. Like, A, like 15 year olds today are not millennials actually and the term millennial would not have existed in David's time. So who are millennials? So let's just go through the generations just so we can see where millennials fall. So baby boomers, how many people here are a baby boomer? All right, baby boomers. So baby boomers born 46 through 64, um, they're a very defined generation. Uh, Who comes after baby boomers? Anyone know? Generation X. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Generation X. So, do you guys know who this is? Yeah. Tom York, lead singer of Radiohead. He's like a quintessential Gen Xer, I believe. And then after Gen X comes Millennials. So, there's Justin, <laughs> Justin Bieber. So, he's the quintessential Millennial, I think. Millennials are also uh, called Generation Y. So, following Generation X, Generation Y, also known as Millennials. And then naturally the next generation who so those of you who have kids who have had kids since the year 2000 that's generation Z. So um, anyone know who this is this actor? Stranger Things. So it's the actor from Stranger Things. He's generation she. Z. He, he or she. What, yeah. He or Millennial. Okay so <laughs> the pink turtleneck kind of is odd but generation Z. So okay so um well, Kira and I are millennials, so we are actually talking from experience as older millennials. Um, I think I'm barely on the cutoff of a millennial, um, but we also spend a lot of time around millennials. So, Kira, do you want to talk about? Some yeah. Of
1: that? So, um, Brett and I both work at an, at Biola University, which is um, an institution of higher education, and so, yeah, we're around millennials all the time. It's part of our profession, um, and. Brett is an elder at Southlands, and we lead a life group at Southlands, um, and somehow, some way, the millennials seem to always flock um, into our life group, so we have like a life group of about 20. Mm-hmm. And just over the course of our marriage, we've been married for five years, um, we've just done a lot of discipleship with millennials, so that's kind of the perspective we're going to be speaking from today, and just as a caveat as well, like it has been in an American context, so we know that there's a lot of global representation here, so this is just what we've seen from leading American Millennials yeah so <laughs> so what are
0: some traits of Millennials just to kind of lay the groundwork before we get into discipling Millennials I'm just going to go through a couple there's a lot we could say that we'd have a whole breakout session just on defining Millennials um, but here are some traits so they're digital natives so if you're a millennial you've grown up in a world with the internet with technology technology is a huge part of your identity um, so it all comes naturally to them they're digital natives Here's another interesting one, um, they tend to f- be prone to instant gratification and a lot of this has to do with technology, if you think about if you grew up in the age of Google, everything is just instantly accessible so there's very little patience for things like the instantaneous uh, nature of technology leads to uh, a tendency towards instant gratification and impatience. So. We'll talk about this more later, but that kind of poses problems with discipleship. If you think about discipleship being a long obedience in the same direction, how do you do that with impatient millennials who don't have a tolerance for anything long? They expect recognition and praise. So they're very confident in their abilities. This is kind of the uh, trophy for participating generation. They've been used to being kind of given praise and accolades their Mm -hmm. whole life. Uh, So that's another interesting dynamic of millennials. They're also very idealistic and entrepreneurial. This is actually a really positive attribute of millennials that uh, we don't want to always talk about millennials in kind of a derogatory sense. Like we are very idealistic. We're go-getters uh, in the professional workplace. We dream big dreams, and we, and actually, if you look at like. The startups happening in like Silicon Valley, a lot of them are being started by millennials because they just like have a dream and they make it happen and they believe they can. So their overconfidence uh, can become a good thing when it comes to the business world and entrepreneurial endeavors. Millennials are very skeptical of institutions. Um, so religion, organized religion, um, politicians, if they've grown up being marketed to, they've grown up um, with a mistrust of authority Uh, And so they tend to be very skeptical of uh, institutions. So this is also one that poses some unique challenges for the church. How do we overcome the natural skepticism millennials have towards institutions? And then the final one I'll mention is this. Uh, they They have a tendency to think of their identity in more fluid terms rather than fixed terms. So they don't like to be pinned down as like, any sort of category. They want to have a, an identity that can always be changing. Um, the slash professionals is, is the way I describe the whole thing. Like, on your Twitter profile, on your Facebook profile, you will say like, I'm a Christian slash husband slash poet slash like, <laughs> you know, entrepreneur. Like, you'll see that a lot with millennials. They like to do a lot of everything and they don't want to say that they can't be like <laughs> this on the side or, or an Uber driver at night and like a CEO in the day, whatever. Like. So they're they're slash professionals, and so that fluid identity is another interesting challenge, I think, as disciples of Christ. How do we work with a fluid identity, but also knowing that all of us ultimately want to be like Christ? So there is kind of a fixed identity we should all be striving towards. Okay, so we're gonna structure our time focusing on two overarching challenges that we see discipling millennials, and those are integration and commitment. So what do I mean by integration? Um, I often think about the one of the paradigms for life as a millennial is if you think about like a laptop screen and all the different windows that you have open. So we have like a dozen windows open at any given time and we're always toggling between like our social media accounts and our work email and our personal email and like our Netflix and all these different things so it's almost like a metaphor for this way that we live in compartmentalized boxes. We have our aspects of our different aspects of our identity, kind of that slash identity, they exist side by side, and it can create a very fragmentary identity. So, given that context for millennials, how do we work towards a more integrated Christian identity? This is a challenge that Kira and I see a lot with uh, the millennials in our life, and we'll talk about some specific areas. And I just put Mark 12 up here just to remind us that. Um, the um, integration of all aspects of our life is what we're commanded to do. So when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He, he hearkens back to the Shema in terms of here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord our, our, your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So we really need to live integrated lives where every aspect of our being is pointing towards that Christ-likeness, loving God with all these aspects of our life. So we're going to focus on these four aspects of life that we, we could talk about a lot of things here that millennials have a tendency to compartmentalize, but we're going to focus on work, entertainment, technology, and sex. And the second thing we're going to talk about is commitment and just the importance of really um, getting millennials to see the importance of commitment, especially in the context of church. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the reasons why committing to a church for a, the long Call can be a challenge for millennials, um, but as Hebrews 10 calls us to, um, you know, not give up meetings together, but to hold fast the confession of our hope uh, and, and, and go to church, you know, gather together to stir up one another, to um, encourage one another all the more as the day draws near. So Kira's going to start um, in terms of aspects of the life that we can compartmentalize by talking a little bit about integrating faith in work.
1: Yeah, so this is actually a topic that, I mean, you can read a lot of articles about it. I think there's a lot of business leaders and churches that are wondering, how can I help my uh, millennials integrate their faith in their work? And it's something I see quite a bit. Um, I work, like I said, at Bio University. I'm a senior director, so I oversee a staff of 15, and half of them are millennials, and I am as well. And so um, I think it's something that, you know, I do a lot of reading in terms of how do you, you know, motivate and engage and retain millennials. So... One of the big questions that we seek to address and want to help you all address is just how do we help them integrate their faith into their work life? And so one of the good things about millennials is that they tend to be very idealistic. um, And there's a lot of innovation, like Brett said, coming out of the workforce, which is just a very positive thing about millennials. Um, One of the things about that as well is that they want to understand how and why things work a certain way. And part of that is because they think that they have the genius to kind of be the unique answer to your work's problem, your church's problem. <laughs> and I really don't exclude myself, you know, from that solution. My boss is, is 45, and I think he, you know, he and I kind of hit that rub sometimes where it's like, you know, I see so idealistically the solution to a problem that we're facing in our workplace. Um, and so, yeah, they just have a lot of confidence about their own knowledge and skills and abilities. And it can be a really great thing to take advantage of in the church because they're very eager to help and to lend their ideas. Um, But the bad side of this can be just very high expectations. So one of the greatest values for millennials as it relates to their work is that they would have a job that aligns with their greatest passion. And anything short of that, like they wanna check out the window. So if their job isn't 100% passion satisfying, they like are itching to leave in six weeks. Um, you know, one of the interesting, funny stories that I've seen in this, so I'm discipling this girl and, um, we get together for lunch every other week and, um, she's, is a bio graduate. And so she's, you know, 22, um, obviously needs a job in order to pay for rent, in order to pay for life. And, is cobbling together a few jobs. I think that's, the, that's kind of the status of possibly a lot of Millennials. They're trying to just make ends meet. So was chatting with her just about her um, workplace. She had been employed somewhere for six weeks or maybe four to six weeks. And she's like, you know, Kira, I just, I hate it. And like, I'm just not inspired by it. She was working at a retail store. And um, I was like, okay, well, do you need the job to make rent? And she was like, well, yeah. And I said, well, it sounds like you just got to push through the hard yards because you you need a job. And so she was talking with me about the things that just she wasn't inspired by. And um, I just told her, you know, I think it's really important for you to just lean in and just embrace the discomfort of working for a job that actually isn't necessarily that passion satisfying. You can find that through other avenues of your life and that actually is gonna be something that gives you character to do something that you don't necessarily love to do. Um, And it just didn't sit well with her. Like I could just tell we weren't gaining traction in the conversation and we had life group that night. And um, I had told her, hey, you know, go talk to your boss and maybe there's some areas that you can... Um, do, like, for your job that they aren't letting you do yet, that might, like, strike some more passion. And she's like, okay, yeah, I'll think about it. So she came over for Life Group that night and pulled me aside at the end of the night and was like, hey, I just need to tell you I quit my job today. And I was like, what? You you did? I actually think I slapped her. I was like, no, that is not a good thing. Um, And now, yeah, she, you know, doesn't have, she has one job and she's scrambling to make ends meet. But that is such an important value for millennials. And I think it's important to disciple them through their restlessness in things that don't bring them instant satisfaction. You know, that, you know, there is actually very valuable things in working diligently for a job that doesn't necessarily meet your greatest need or the world's greatest need. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and because the millennials do struggle with jobs that aren't perfectly fit to their passions, I think as the church we would do well to focus on a more holistic theology of vocation uh, where where we can communicate to them in whatever job that they're in, they can look at it through the lens of their faith. Uh, we often think about, um, unfortunately, we think about vocation in the church in a little bit of a hierarchical sense where uh, we kind of perpetuate this feeling that like if you're not doing kind of mission in an explicit sense or going overseas or in a pastoral ministry position, you know, the other jobs are less than and they can often be seen as a means to an end. So you might have some a millennial who has a paying job that's just a paycheck that allows them to do the quote more important work whatever that may be in ministry. So we really need to have a more holistic sense of uh, vocation. I wrote about an article in the Advanced Magazine, which if you haven't checked out that uh, latest issue of Advanced Magazine, it's all about faith and work. And I wrote an article about this. But one of the things I talked about uh, is we need to get over this um, idea that work only has an instrumental value. Um, it's, it's a misconception that work is a product of the fall, that it's a curse. Work actually existed before the fall, it's part of paradise. It's, it's before the fall and then it's in the new creation. Uh, so it's a part of paradise. It, there's an intrinsic value to work that we need to, uh, we need to find that sense of like, how, how can this like good of working, whatever it is, whether I'm a barista or a waiter or you know, an accountant, how can I think of it in this sense? And one thing that I often think about um, is that we're created in the image of God, right? And God is a worker. But in what sense is God a worker? Well, you have to go back to Genesis 1 where the very first act of God is working, he's creating, and what is he doing? He's bringing order out of the chaos. There was was a void, there was formlessness, and he brought form to it, he brought order out of the chaos. So one of the ways I talk to millennials about finding meaning as a Christian in work is to challenge them, like, whatever you're doing, whatever your job, you can can think of it in these terms of bringing order out of chaos. Um, So if you're a chef, like you're bringing order to the chaos of the infinite combination of ingredients and flavors and making people's day with like beautiful food. If you're a writer and I'm a writer, I think of it in terms of bringing order from the chaos of a blank page and like ideas that are floating in my head and something that needs to be communicated. That's an ordering of chaos activity. If you're an Uber driver, you're bringing order out of the chaos Mm -hmm. of maps and getting someone from point A to point B. So literally any job you could be in could be thought of in these terms. And I think to to think in that I'm created in God's image, he was a a God who ordered chaos, how can I do that in little ways in whatever my job is? I think that's a helpful way to think about vocation. So a recommended resource uh, for vocation, and we're gonna have a, a book recommendation in each section we talk about. Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor, one of the best books we've ever read on this topic. So we would highly recommend that one. Okay, so moving on to another category um, that millennials, just like they can compartmentalize work as something that doesn't really have much to do with their faith, um, entertainment is a big part of millennials' lives. Uh, There was a recent statistics I I read that said, millennials on average spend 18 hours consuming media every day. So it's a big part of their life. They, um, you know, whether it's Netflix or just social media or music, Uh, Like the streaming services, Spotify, I think like 75% of the Spotify customers are millennials. Um, So it's a big part of their life, but oftentimes we've found that they do tend to compartmentalize it as like something that they enjoy, but it doesn't really have anything to do with their faith. And in fact, an interesting story recently that illustrates this, there's a guy that we have uh, discipled, he's a really solid Christian, like he is just like, he knows the Bible, he's serving in our church. Uh, but he loves rap music, like hardcore rap music, mm-hmm. and he's a white guy, so it's kind of funny, and he knows all the words to like all the rap songs, uh, and recently he made a comment that was like, oh, but I would never want these songs to be played in church. I, 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 I could never conceive of these songs being played in church, and I just think that's interesting and telling in terms of how we compartmentalize these things. Why is it okay to enjoy this entertainment outside of church, whether it's a movie or music but we wouldn't ever feel okay like having like a screening of a movie like that in the church or listening to this music. As Christians we need to think about our faith in a holistic sense so that every aspect of our life uh, is integrated and so these unhealthy compartments, uh, entertainment can be a really unhealthy one and one thing that I've noticed is this, um, this tendency to kind of swing the pendulum from one extreme to the other So a lot of millennials like myself grew up in a more legalistic environment when it comes to entertainment, where um, I grew up in churches that kind of viewed entertainment and movies and music with a little bit of skepticism. We burned our secular CDs, that whole thing. Um, (laughs) And myself included, a lot of us who grew up in that environment have swung the pendulum to the other extreme so that we don't wanna be that. We wanna distance ourselves from that. We don't wanna be known as those prudish Christians who don't, you know, engage with culture. But the problem is we've gone to the other extreme where now it's just kind of like an uncritical embrace of everything, and that's not helpful either. So we need to be thinking about um, culture and entertainment in a way that um, is somewhere in the middle where we actually do enjoy the goodness of what God has created. And there's a lot of goodness and truth and beauty in arts and culture and entertainment. Uh, And As Christians, we should be seeking that and understanding that. But we need to do it in a way that is integrated not compartmentalized away from our faith we need to do it in a way that's honoring to god and actually a way to worship god so i often look to this verse 1 corinthians 10 31 uh, whatever you eat or drink whatever you do do it all to the glory of god so literally like all aspects of god's creation can bring glory to him if done in the right way like you know drinking can be a good god honoring activity but it can also be really damaging right like taken to excess, anything can become damaging, but that doesn't mean that in moderation it can't be a way to honor God. So millennials really need to understand this and we need to, as a church, help them. We need to be modeling this in our own lives for them, like healthy ways to approach entertainment and culture. Some recommended resources for this topic, um, Christianity Today, I, I write film reviews for Christianity Today, so I'm kind of biased towards them, but I think they do a really good job engaging in art and culture from a Christian perspective, but not in like a superficial counting the curse words way, but actually a more deep, robust way of looking for um, Christian themes and things that are are not stretching, but actually make sense. And then Christ in Pop Culture, another website that I would recommend.
1: So um, the next area we're talking about is just um, millennials and their use in technology, and how can we disciple them through that? So there's so much we could talk about here. Technology is is obviously a huge part of all of our lives, but particularly millennials' lives. And so just these stats show it alone that um, a millennial checks checks his or her smartphone 43 times per day and spends 5.4 hours on social media per day. Um, So there's a lot of applications that we could give towards millennials and their use of technology. But the two that we want to focus on is just the whole concept of status anxiety as well as the loss of being present physically. Um, So in terms of status anxiety, um, so in the world of social media, we live in a state of just constant comparison, um, coupled just with this need for affirmation and recognition. And um, status anxiety throws up, shows up through things like all of the selfies that we post on our social media accounts. And we've all been there. None of us are immune from doing that um but i think the interesting thing that i was reading about is that it used to be that we would take a picture of something and we would post it on social media and we would rack up all these likes and it would kind of make us feel really good well now we anticipate the likes that will get racked up through a particular photo and so we'll actually take that photo Mm -hmm. because of that so it's this preemptive thing that's driving us in our behavior and there's some t- statistics behind that. So this is just a crucial area where we have the opportunity to speak about the intrinsic value that um, we have in the um, image of Christ without you know any amount of likes. And I think one of the ways that we can do this most effectively is honestly through our own use of social media. I think we need to live as people who live as examples in this area um, we've seen that some of our greatest discipleship in this area has honestly been through the times where we've restrained from social media for a period of time. And, you know, interestingly, like I had just recently, I took three months off of Instagram and social media, and I did that because I wanted the people who were in my life to be the ones who knew about what was going on in my life. What a concept, right? And so I actually got a text message from a girl that said, hey, Kier, I've missed you on Instagram. (laughs) And I was like what does that even mean? I've missed you on Instagram. Like, you haven't missed me, but you've missed me on Instagram. And, and it made me kind of just do a double, like a second check of like, okay, well, who do I portray I am on Instagram and what does this person miss about me? Because they clearly haven't like, you know, texted me in three months, but there was something about my lack of presence on Instagram that made them kind of wonder where I was. So yeah, it made me second guess and just think twice about what makes it on my Instagram feed. Like, is it edifying to the body? And I think as leaders, we honestly need to have that filter. Like, even if you're having a great day with your spouse or with your kids or whatever, like, that isn't worthy enough for posting on Instagram. I think there is a witness that we live in our lives on social media that we, that speaks to millennials because they're on their phone all the time. And that doesn't mean, like... Everyone should go off social media. I'm back on it now. But I honestly am trying to be more discerning in the way that I live, my presence on social media, as an example to others who yeah, who might just check that. So just a small thing on that. One thing
0: I would add on status anxiety, I think it's such an opportunity for the church to speak the gospel into this area. uh, Because if you think about our status in Christ and being adopted into Christ's family because of his unmerited grace, like, That is a a direct kind of confrontation of the status anxiety that we get from the affirmation uh, of others that social media really embodies our human kind of a tendency to look to others for affirmation. So from a discipleship point of view, this is an area where we really need to be speaking the gospel into millennials.
1: Yeah, there was a really good quote I read that says, In God's economy, approval is something we must wait for. Those who feed on little nibbles of immediate approval from man will eternally starve but those who aim their entire lives towards the glory and approval of God will find it in Christ's eternal approval. And I think we just can be living that way. Um, So the second challenge for Christian discipleship just in the realm of technology is just the loss of being present. So we are increasingly living our lives through screens and streams and apps and... Snapchat and everything. Um, Our relationships are digital. Our communication is digital. Our love to one another is becoming digital through cons and things like that. So our ever-present phones just offer us endless distractions for actually taking away from living in the present and living actually like flesh to flesh, shoulder to shoulder. Um, Brett and I see this a lot when we travel you know we were in Rome recently and we were shocked to see the thousands of people who would be like in the Colosseum or St. Peter's Basilica and they're actually more mindful of taking like the best photo than they are of just like seeing it with their own eyes and Brett and I were just like what a shame you know they're they're replacing a digital memory with their own mindful memory and our cameras are actually making us less aware of retaining a memory in the moment um There's this great quote that says, by outsourcing the memory of a moment to our camera, we flatten out the event into a 2D snapshot and proceed to ignore its many other contours, such as context, meaning, smells, touch, and taste. Um, And just in light of this, because we are increasingly living in a place where um, technology is taking over. It just means that our f- the flesh and blood reality of the body of Christ needs to be that much more powerful and that much more meaningful. So as leaders in churches, that's one one thing we can do that as a body of Christ, you know, how can we um, compete, right, with the allure of like constant digital distraction? And one of the ways that we can do this is just through encouraging physical gatherings and tell them to put their phone away, you know, and model that as an example. When they're at your house for dinner, like leave your phone in your bedroom and allow that moment to be the most important thing that matters at that point in time. Um, You know, we need to resensitize them towards the value of flesh and blood relationships, Mm -hmm. and we can do that um, just by putting away our phones. Yeah.
0: I'm gonna talk about this book.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, so... This is a book that I just finished reading. I would recommend, honestly, every single person in this room read this book. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And it honestly is, it gives such a biblical framework to the use, or t- to the use of our smartphones. And one of the things that was most convicting about it for me was actually reading about the offense towards like God's humanity that I am creating when I'm texting while driving. Like it's things like that. They they, he gives a biblical framework just for our use of phones, and it was so practical and so helpful. And it was, um, it kind of wasn't like an extreme thing, like check your phone away. But Mm. anyway, just would really recommend that book.
0: Okay, so our fourth and final category of uh, integration, rather than compartmentalizing, is sexuality. Uh, And you know, obviously, this is a big part of millennial life. And our culture is so saturated with sex. uh, We kind of have to do a better job as the church of um, talking about this in a compelling way. Um, You know, unfortunately, the views of many millennials on sexuality are not primarily being formed by the church. Um, They're being formed primarily by the culture in very misdirected ways, misguided ways. Uh, And that's going to be an uphill battle for the church in the 21st century. Um, So obviously, there's a lot that could be said about this topic, and there probably should be a whole breakout session in Mm -hmm. advance on just this topic, but we're gonna talk about just two particular areas that we've um, had experience um, discipling in this area. So Kira's gonna start uh, with women, gender, and the church.
1: Yeah, so there's so much that can be said here, and even just Ashley this morning touched on this so well. Um, but some of the trends of, of among millennial females, just mm-hmm. picking out three, purity culture. So, you know, true love waits, that whole concept. It's viewed with suspicion and potentially as a threatening ideology um, that supports male power and abuse. So the whole concept of purity culture is something that just causes millennial women to kind of bristle. Um, Many young Christian millennials would see an emphasis on modesty as something that was very suppressive. Um, They see their sexuality, their femininity, their dress, their style as an entitlement. It's something that they want to unashamedly celebrate. and these combos can mean that there is an inherent resistance among millennials toward complementarian theology um i've seen that um you know chances are millennial women in your church have conflicted views at best about complementarian theology i think we don't do a great job unpacking that in our churches so how have i worked this out with women i'm discipling in in our flock um You know, I'm someone who has a really strong personality. I'm a go-getter in work. So I definitely, I think, kind of tend to attract the women that are like, oh, yeah, maybe I resonate with her and maybe I can bend her ear. And the reality is, like, Brett and I are happily living in a complementarian marriage. And so one of the things I like to do is invite them into our home and then show them that my strength is our strength, that Mm -hmm. it isn't just me, actually. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe you see me and you experience me as more just assertive or whatever and then they maybe would like classify as someone else that was a pastor's wife but they come into our home and realize we get to disciple them through the way that we work out our complementarianism even in our home you know they get to see the way that that um, shakes out between Brett and I so I Brett and I always talk about just tag team pastoring um, especially on this issue you know we had a girl that we were discipling who was super hung up on the modesty issue and Um, ultimately, like in a dinner table conversation, Brett just had to step in and really kind of give her a biblical framework in that moment that I honestly don't think I could have done as if I couldn't have done as effectively as Brett could have in that moment, even though I'm someone who perhaps she looked to and was like, oh yeah, I resonate, you know, with, I don't know, with Kira. So I think tag team pastoring on this issue is really an important one, especially, um, especially for women, so um, another thing that we can do in our churches is just give stage recognition and just stave opportunity to honor various types of women in your church, so don't showcase and model one type of woman as being kind of like the ideal, you know, female in your church, and Southlands does an incredibly great job of this. I serve on the um, financial council at Southlands, and I love that because it's a part of my gifting, and they've allowed me to serve in that capacity like it's not viewed as a threat and I have felt so honored by ab- by being able to use my gifting and skill set in a way that is helpful to the church and so I think we need to find creative ways for these millennial women to find a place to fit in your church because if they're single and they don't yet have a husband like they might not necessarily feel like they know where to fit and so I think we need to create models of women who they can connect with and we need to create opportunities in our churches for them to fit in somewhere, because otherwise they're gonna, they're gonna leave the back door and p- possibly be a little bit burnt out,
0: yeah. yeah. So the, sec- the second thing we're gonna talk about in the area of sexuality is same-sex attraction and LGBT issues, obviously a huge topic and could be its own uh, breakout session, but the fact is millennials are more accepting of homosexuality and LGBT things. Uh, a pew, Survey a couple of years ago found that 51% of evangelical Protestant millennials say homosexuality should be accepted by society, compared with a third of evangelical baby boomers. So there's a big generational divide, and it's likely only going to grow with Generation Z. Um, part of this is that many millennials like have close friends and family members who are, um, you know, sexual minorities, LGBT, same sex attracted. So a lot of them have a hard time reconciling what. The Bible teaches uh, what they've grown up learning about this issue in church uh, with their personal relationships with people who identify in this way. So that's a big challenge, and it's just a reality with people. I I guarantee there's millennials in your church who wrestle with this issue, uh, and it's something that the church for too long has kind of ignored because we're scared to address it, and we don't want to say the wrong thing. but. The days of doing that are over. We need to like direct this head on um, because this is an issue that is dividing the church globally, and will continue to divide the church. Um, discipleship with people in this area is a new frontier in many respects, um, but it's something we need to lean into. Uh, we have to learn how to do community in our churches with people with same-sex attraction. So um, this can be uncomfortable, and it's going to be uncomfortable. Like uh, we were talking about, like this might mean like. Uh, a single gender Bible study, with, like a women's group, might um, need to invite the, the like lesbian or like same sex attracted woman to like be a part of it because we don't want to ostracize her. And wh- what group is she going to be a part of? Uh, and that might be awkward. It might mean that a men's group has to invite a same sex attracted man into that group, even knowing the uncomfortable possibility that he might develop a crush on one of the guys in the group, like. So these are the uncomfortable realities of discipling with this issue. But uh, as I said, we need to lean into it and not be afraid of it. Kira and I are having kind of our first uh, hands on foray into this recently. There's a, a kid who has been in our life group before, and we've kind of had a special place in uh, our heart for him over the years. And an, uh, a sin issue in this area of same sex attraction recently came to light. And it's just kind of a public thing. And He's very broken about it. He doesn't identify. He doesn't want to b- identify as gay. He really wants to like grow in this area, um, but he actually didn't have a place to live. Um, so we actually invited him to live in our guest room for a couple months and just to have a safe home where we could kind of disciple him through this difficult season in his life where this this private area, this private struggle has unfortunately come to light for him. Uh, actually, fortunately, I think they came to light so he can start to heal. Um, mm-hmm. But So we're kind of wrestling with this for the first time how do we do this it's an uncomfortable thing but um uh, i guarantee there's people in your congregations for whom this is a reality uh, and so we need to figure out as a church how to um how to deal with this
1: can i add something to that i think you know having this like literally hit home for us with this situation of this guy living with us right now it honestly has sparked such important conversations even for brett and i to have on this topic because it is so important to, to, to just know how to like embody Jesus through loving someone with same-sex attraction. And it can be like a theory until he's living in your spare bedroom, mm-hmm. you know, and he's living in your spare bedroom. And yeah, having conversations, even man and, wife, man and wife about like, what do boundaries look like? You know, what does it look like for me to have someone with same-sex attraction living like down the hall from my husband? Like, that's an uncomfortable thing, you know? Like, should you guys be home alone together? You know, all those things, and yet it's just been, I think, at least we know he has received it in a way that honestly has discipled him in extraordinary ways, and so I think this is a great opportunity for men and women in terms of marriage to actually embody, like, a selfless marriage in a way for someone with same-sex attraction that could be so incredibly healing and powerful.
0: Okay, so what do we do about all, all of this, this, these areas of sexuality? So I just have a couple of recommendations, and again, we could talk about this all day. But um, So one recommendation uh, that I say for the church is we need to just be more compelling on, se- on Christian sexual ethics. Uh, for too long, we've kind of avoided this topic, but we need to lean into it. We need to do sermon series on sexuality. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the church's teaching on this has been in the vein of like, don't do this, Like, just don't have sex before marriage, don't do this, don't do that, but what should we do? What is the positive aspect of sexuality? What did God create it for, Uh, and how are those boundaries that God put around sexuality a good thing uh, for the flourishing of the world? And they are a good thing, so we need to think uh, carefully about this and how can we present Christian sexual ethics in our churches, uh, whether it's a sermon series or a class, uh, a, a young adult specific thing, Um, We need to be doing a better job of being compelling on sexual ethics. And not only compelling, but we need to be consistent on sexual ethics. So this is an area where the church hasn't done a great job in the past. Uh, We've kind of um, picked and chosen areas of sexuality that we've really focused on, but we've kind of turned a blind eye to other areas. So, right, like divorce, we're mostly okay with that as evangelicals, even though scripture clearly says things about divorce. Um, but like premarital sex and homosexuality, like we're loud about those issues. No, we need to be consistent. We need to apply the biblical principles about sexuality across the board. So a church should not refuse to perform same-sex weddings while simultaneously performing weddings for cohabiting heterosexual couples. So that's an example of like the sort of consistency we need to apply. Because if we're inconsistent on these things, nothing we say will be heard by millennials. They really value like, consistency and not kind of hypocrisy. Another uh, big thing I think that we need to do is challenge the notion of sexual identity. This idea that is really a new idea in history since the sexual revolution in the 60s, this idea of sexual identity, that part of our identity and part of our ultimate worth and being is our sexuality and what is our identity, that is an, that's a, it's kind of a false notion that we need to just undermine and attack as the church. Like, our identity is in Christ. Like Our union with Christ is our first and foremost identity, and so even for those who struggle with their sexuality, and sexuality is a complicated thing, and all of us struggle with their sexuality to some extent, um, but we shouldn't reduce it to that level of identity because once someone in their mind switches to identifying with that aspect, it's like a lost cause almost because society is just gonna pat them on the back and say, like, this is your identity, no one should tell you different, so this is the, the, the front battle line, I think, is challenging the whole sexual identity mm-hmm. notion. And then the final point I would say is we really need to celebrate singleness and celibacy. So if we have a same-sex attracted person in our church, uh, hypothetically, and we tell them, unfortunately, like, the future for you looks like celibacy, like, we can't say that on one hand, but have a church that upholds marriage as like, the ultimate like, epitome of living in a, in a flourishing way. Like we also need, we need to show that singleness can be just as fulfilling uh, as marriage. And too often we have churches that elevate marriage as this ultimate good. And where does that leave the, the same-sex attracted people who choose celibacy? It leaves them very isolated. So, and singles on top of that. So even heterosexual singles in the church, we need to do a better job of incorporating them as leaders, as people who we we uh, say are valuable, you're not second-class citizens, you are full members of our community. Uh, Paul you know, was single, Jesus of course was single, so if, if singleness was something that, they, that worked for them, and in fact Paul commended singleness, right, in scripture as a good thing, we need to be doing a better job of that in our churches. So a couple resources um, for this. Uh, There's a video series that um, the Catholic Church, the Vatican actually commissioned, but it's not like a super (laughs) Catholic-y video series, so don't be afraid of it, but it's called Humanum, and you can go to it on Vimeo. Uh, They they incorporate Protestant theologians in these documentaries, but they're short films that go through different aspects of the, the beautiful picture of sexuality that God has created scripturally, and I haven't seen anything that does as good of a job of like painting sexuality and gender and the complementarity of gender in a beautiful way, so I'd recommend those videos. And then um, Spiritual Friendship by Wesley Hill. He's a same-sex attracted Christian who has chosen celibacy because he believes that's the biblical way, Um, and Sam Albury is similar. Um, Both of their books are excellent, so I'd recommend those. Okay, so we're going to move into our second overarching Theme, and that is the importance of commitment. Um, commitment is hard for millennials. They are commitment averse. Um, I recently read a Forbes magazine survey that said 91% of millennials say they expect to stay in a job less <laughs> than three years. So that just shows you, like, whether it's a job, you know, whereas their parents' generation, baby boomers, tended to stick with a career, you know, for like 40 years, millennials, that does not appeal to them. So they, they like short-term commitments. They can't do long-term commitments. They're also pretty skeptical of the long-term commitment of marriage. So the marriage statistics are that millennials are getting married later in their 20s uh, compared to their parents' generation if they're getting married at all because they're skeptical. So why is, why is commitment so hard for millennials? Uh, Kira is going to talk about it. Yeah,
1: so a, a four-letter word. We probably all know FOMO. Um, the fear of missing out um, you know, is probably most exemplified by millennials, um, just the whole idea that they wanna keep their options open for that possibility that something better might come their way, that would be kind of the next big thing and the next best thing. Um, and so, you know, the interesting thing is, Brett and I were talking about it was like, this actually isn't a new trend. You know, what did we see in the Garden of Eden? We saw the first account of FOMO, you know, one fruit that they could not eat and yet they did not wanna miss out on the good taste and nature of that fruit. And so I think, you know, this is something that is unfortunately a trend among millennials. And I think they are honestly like ridden with anxiety about this. This is something that it it runs deep, you know, and it it leads to a lack of commitment. It leads to bailing on things that they say yes to. It leads to them not RSVPing to the party you invite them to, because like a friend might call them that day to go to like, you know, a baseball game and they, they would be so sad to miss out on that. So how have we discipled through this, um, in our uh, context, we have just held the bar of accountability very high and we've laid out super clear expectations for what we expect of them and we've held them to it. It is honestly something we have like, not little toleration for, but we, we run a thin line on this because right. we have a life group and we do dinner every Wednesday night and or, yeah, every Wednesday night. So we do like a you know nice dinner, plated plated meals, And yet we ask them to bring stuff. And you know, I'm a working woman. I like get home at six and they're coming over at seven and I'm like scrambling to get the meal together. So sometimes I ask them to bring part of the main. So we had a pizza night. And at the beginning of our life group every year, we say, okay, we need you to always contribute towards food, rotate it amongst the group so not everyone's carrying the same weight. And we expect that of you. Like, so please, you know, do that. And we know commitments wane throughout the year. So we had pizza night the girl who signed up for crusts, which was like a pretty important element of pizza night. Like it's the crust and she didn't show up. And I was just like, Hey, texted her like, what's up? What happened? You know, like pizza night crusts, like, where are you? You know, and didn't respond to me until the next day. And I had a a chat with her. I just said, Hey, like No worries that something came up or whatever, but could you just let me know? Because I would have had someone else bring crust and like we kind of needed it for pizza night, 20 people over for dinner, and it left us in a bind. And honestly, I think she was so refreshed by being held accountable that she hasn't missed a life group since. Like honestly, and I don't think that's like a performance thing. I think honestly, like we don't have kids, but we've been told like when you spank your kid, like they actually like, behave right sometimes, and they are refreshed by it. You know, they're like, oh, yay, you know, spanking uh. sometimes. So I think that when we hold them accountable to what their commitments are, they actually respond well. And I think it's, it's refreshing for them. So we, you know, we would recommend just doing that. And I think she also felt grateful that I missed, her, that we missed her, you know, like we noticed that she wasn't there that her presence in the life group actually mattered mm-hmm. that much that I followed up with her and said, hey, like, you know, would have been great to see you. So call them to commitment, expect accountability and follow up when it lacks. Yeah. yeah.
0: So aside from FOMO, the other big thing reason why they're so commitment averse is just consumerism has been the air they have breathed growing up in consumerism. So they're used to having it your way like they can build their own burritos at Chipotle, they can curate their Netflix playlist exactly to their liking. Every choice is something they can choose and Curate themselves so they apply that logic to every commitment and like if they don't want to do something if it doesn't fit with their you know schedule of what they want to do like they won't do it like they're consumers and this is particularly problematic with church and we've seen this uh, with church shopping church hopping even the fact that we like use church shopping in our vocabulary as just kind of an accepted term shows how much consumerism has infiltrated the way that we approach church like church is not a product that we shop for like we shop for a brand of toothpaste like where we, we try a brand and then we get tired of it and then we shop around for a new brand and try something new but this is the way that millennials often approach church they think about it in terms of their consumer checklist of what are the things i want out of a church what do i want to get out of it like how often do you leave a church service and ask like what did you get out of the sermon the fact that that's the language we're using shows that consumerism is is the way we approach church um, so we need to challenge this uh, in order to to convince millennials that commitment to a church is important. Uh, we need to start by challenging the consumer mindset and framing the church not as a product that the marketplace, you know, is wanting to kind of choose and and, and create to, to its liking. No, the church is something that Jesus has created, and he has a vision for what it is, regardless of what all the consumers would like it to be. Um, so I actually wrote a book that is coming out this uh, fall called Uncomfortable. And the uh, subtitle is The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. And it's really about calling millennials, but everyone, to embrace the church in its discomfort, in its um, challenging nature, recognizing that it's not going to be the perfect fit. And there's no perfect church. There's always going to be things about the church that stretch you, that challenge you, that are uncomfortable. But the thing is, we actually grow the most in discomfort. Whether it's a sport that we're trying to get good at, like you don't become good at a sport or any sort of skill by being comfortable. You stretch yourself, you push yourself, you train, you become better at it. The same is true for our spiritual formation. We're not gonna grow in our faith if we only ever go to the church that kind of gives us what we want out of it. Um, Being in a church because it's, even when it's uncomfortable is a good thing. We need to show that logic in a compelling way to millennials to challenge them to get out of this church shopping consumer framework and to really like actually embrace the church in its awkwardness and it's kind of yeah you're going to be with people that are different from you that you would never hang out with in any other social setting but that's the beauty of it like mm-hmm. you are going to be so countercultural from all your other friends because you're actually choosing to hang out with a life group that has like <laughs> You know, people in their 70s, and baby boomers, and millennials, and people of all different races and backgrounds, and that doesn't happen in our society anymore. So this is a way that the church can be very countercultural in a refreshing and compelling way. Um, You know, the church is a family. We need to frame it as a family, and I think this is an area that millennials are particularly compelled by, and Kira's going to talk about that.
1: Yeah, so millennials, I think, are just hungry for family, and they have a lot of friends on social media, but... um, The reality is that they're really starving for intentional and incarnational community. And Brett and I have seen this just through the amount of times they just land on our doorstep. And I think we, you know, what does that look like for for us to disciple, you know, 20-somethings and to provide them an opportunity for family? You know, our margins run thin, so it's not like we have a ton of spare time to, um, you know, to embody family always. But what do we do? We just let them like jump into the stream of our life. So do dishes with me, help me prepare life group dinner, come over on a Sunday and help us fix our house. You know, anything we're doing when we're at home, join in like open door, you know, and we're not necessarily going to like always have a like super intentional conversation with you, but you're going to learn things just by habit of, you know, being near us and by the opportunity to just exchange like home life together. So just open up the doors of your home together and even if it means you're just doing dishes together or they're helping you fold laundry, we've just seen that like honestly it's those small things that actually are the easiest to do. Um, They're costly, right? Like I would rather probably fold laundry or do dishes without like having company there, but it is something that's just effective in terms of like time management. So just terms of offering family to millennials, just opening up your home is huge. Um, The second thing is just find creative ways to um, spend your weekends to travel. Um, Brett and I, you know, and this might be difficult for those who have young kids or whatever, but even just the idea of like doing a family vacation. Like who gets to come on your family vacation with you? You know, I think offering family vacation to people who don't inherently have a family is something that can be super powerful. And it we often forget that like singles don't have people to travel with. Like they go places alone on vacation. We have a guy in our life group who literally goes all over the world by himself. Mm-hmm. And it breaks my heart because Brett and I go places together and it's amazing. And, and he goes to like Poland by himself. He's going to Costa Rica next week by himself. So we were like, oh, you know, we have holiday every like December for our jobs we get two weeks off it would be great if we we always go somewhere like we would love to just do that together just the two of us like how romantic but what if we invited like six singles who don't get the chance to really travel abroad ever unless they do it by themselves so we took six young adults um, from our church to um, Italy this winter and We had an amazing time, you know? I think Brett and I looked at each other like the day before we were going and we were just like, are we seriously doing this? Like, why are we, remind me why we're doing this again? We're spending two weeks with this group of young adults and it was honestly the best vacation we've ever taken. (laughs) Um, It was so much more meaningful than had it just been Brett and I, you know? So find creative ways to like do holiday with singles as well. And I think we just need to make sure that our churches aren't idolizing blood family, especially for this generation. You know, they're oftentimes going to be living proximity-wise away from their parents. So, like, what does Father's Day look like for, like, next Sunday for everyone in your church who, like, doesn't have a dad? Are they coming over to your house for dinner? You know, things like that Mother's Day. You know, we need to not, like, prioritize those family holidays as, like, more important than I think just the rhythms of our church—that's something Brett and I are really passionate about. We don't have kids of our own; we would love to, but we don't yet. And so I think, for married people who do have kids, offering family to those that don't is such a powerful way to demonstrate the body of Christ. Because the reality is that we, what we share, is eternal, and we can offer that to those, um, to people who, you know, are currently living like in a status of loneliness, which is oftentimes that year, those years of like 20 to. To 29 ish before you get married, those are lonely years. Um, So be family to them. And um, the church is this opportunity for all of us to be mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And we can do that um, just by the way that we um, demonstrate family to one another. So, the second area, just in terms of convincing millennials to like recognize the importance of commitment, is just establishing the fact that growth. Requires um, rhythms, so this is like a big thing for Brett and I. Um, whenever a millennial asks us, like the secret to our marriage or like the secret to effective, like you know, role in the workplace, we would honestly just typically start with the importance of solid, synchronized rhythms. Yeah. That life is actually about like the mundane rhythm mm-hmm. and. Alan, our pastor, has given us this amazing illustration that we've used um, that is all about a planter box. And he just asked us one time, like, what are the rocks in your planter? What are the things that go in that planter box before the soil ever falls in? Mm -hmm. And if you have those conversations with with the millennials in your church and you recognize that church isn't one of them, like, have a conversation about that. Like, hey, didn't show up for church on Sunday. I know because I had this show and I was out late. And it's like, okay, wait, so church, like was more, or your show, you know, more important than church. Like that's a great opportunity to, sh- for when they reveal what the rocks and their planter are. And I think, you know, it's kind of funny. We had this conversation with a girl in our life group, this whole rocks in the planter analogy. And she was like, I know you guys, but I'm just committed to like 13 things. And it's all just so crazy. And I'm like, yeah, you probably can't be committed to 13 things and do it really well. You probably can do like four things really well. Mm-hmm. So what are the four things you can commit to doing really well? And that was like a tough conversation for her because she's an idealist and she wants to do everything well. But I think this whole thing of like, life is all about rhythms. God created a week in a rhythm, you know, six days of work, one day of rest. And so what are the rhythms in your life that are gonna be kind of the track that set you up for growth Mm -hmm. and for success? And then model that in your life together. Brett and I at the beginning of each year, honestly write out like what our rocks are for that year and we have it on our fridge and it's like other things that come up like if we kind of evaluate that through the lens of like do we have space for it because here's what we're committed to Mm -hmm. and this is what we're committed to everything else needs to like kind of just fit around it and ultimately then the soil starts falling out of the planter box and you actually don't have space to do everything well. So just having a conversation with them about the rocks that are in their planter is huge.
0: Okay, so um, one other thing uh, that makes commitment challenging that we really need to um, kind of uh, lean into and question is the value of authenticity, which we all know is a huge value for millennials. There may be no higher value than authenticity for millennials. Unfortunately, authenticity has come to mean something uh, that is not all that healthy and that, I think authenticity, millennials often equate with um, brokenness and kind of being raw and just like my mess, like I'm authentic. And so that alone, as Christians, we need to kind of challenge. Like really, like that's what it means to be authentic is just be kind of open about your brokenness. Like if Jesus was the the kind of the perfect human, if he lived the perfect human life, he's in theory the most authentic human that's ever lived. And so Christ-likeness really should be the vision for authenticity. And yet too often we view authenticity as kind of just like going around the circle and sharing our like brokenness, but never growing out of that. And so the more authentic thing to do is to push each other forward um, and collectively just moving forward in in holiness. Uh, The other thing with authenticity is it's so much about my feelings and what feels right. And like being fake is like millennials hate that. Like that's (laughs) inauthentic. And so for them, like, showing up to church, like a physical church and the same church like week after week can quickly come to feel inauthentic. It can feel like fake. And so that's a big challenge for their long-term commitment to a church is that yeah, like any relationship, there's gonna be seasons where you feel more into it and less into it and they're prone to just kind of abandoning it in those low moments because they don't wanna do something where they're faking it or where it's inauthentic. So authenticity says if your heart's not into it, you shouldn't force yourself to do it. You should never just go through the motions. But the problem with this is that um, actually going through the motions um, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, It isn't inauthentic. It's actually often how we grow. And this is something I often tell the millennials in our life group is like, if you show up to church and it feels like you're going through the motions, like that's okay. Like just being there physically and going through those motions of worshiping, praying, taking the Lord's Supper, shaking people's hands. like Those are the physical rituals that the church has done for 2,000 years for a reason, because they form us. And the thing about like physical habits, and there's some great books out there I would recommend, particularly by this guy named Jamie Smith, who talks about the connection between physical habit and the desires of our heart. And I would just point millennials to that idea that actually, if you're having trouble feeling it in your heart, sometimes our, emo- our emotions lead our hearts like it we kind of well behavior can precede belief at times as as odd as that may sound to their ears Um, so feeling fake going through the motions isn't necessarily a bad thing Uh, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think gets at it in a in a compelling way do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor act as if you did as soon as we do this we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you love someone you will presently come to love him so as true as that is in relationships, it's true of the church. So if, if, if we can just get millennials to show up, like that's often what I say, just show up, like you're gonna be missed. It's not even a question of you, it's a question of what I'm gonna miss by you not being there. Mm-hmm. Like your physical presence, even if your heart's not in it at all, your body's there and that that matters. Like the body of Christ is a mysterious thing and the spirit can work even when our hearts aren't there. He, can, he can work through us to edify the larger body. And so that's a reality that millennials uh, really need to see. Uh, Just being there matters. Uh, Commitments help discipline our feelings. And that's something that millennials, um, they can be held captive to their feelings. And that's where I see a lot of them going astray, is they're held captive to feeling, to authenticity. But commitments and the rocks in the planter idea, those things can provide guardrails. They can provide checks and balances to the erratic danger of being led by our feelings. And that's a, that's a truth for discipleship, whether it's millennials or any of us, really. We need those guardrails of community, of scripture, um, things that are outside of ourself that are more reliable and stable. Mm-hmm. So um, some resources on commitment, uh, and particularly with the church, Sam Albury has a great book, it's only like 100 pages, called Why Bother With Church. If you have a millennial who's asking this question, mm-hmm. I would give this book to them, it's really compelling. And then You Are What You Love by James uh, K.A. Smith is all about this idea of connecting the physical habits of worship and, and how they change our heart and the desires of our heart. So um, with that, we are um, done with our presentation, but we'd love to take questions and answers if any of if you guys have any questions at all. I think there's a, a mic maybe um, around.
1: Or just talk loud. Or just now. talk loud, yeah.
0: <laughs> Did you have a question? Yeah. And just wondering where who they were from, if you can.
1: That was from that book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Both of them. 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. It just came out. It like just came a out by Crossway. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: you said with millennials, in terms of um, the woman,
0: uh, issues around purity and modesty, and so there's mm-hmm. uh a kind of deconstruction that's happening uh kind of at mm-hmm. university levels yeah. i just wondered in your discipleship of woman h- how have you tried to deconstruct the deconstruction? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah that's a big good question um one of the biggest things i try to do is ask a lot of questions like where is this coming from mm-hmm. um, and most of the time I find like it's oftentimes, oftentimes they're expressing like, you know, the the head of the iceberg, you know, and I'm wanting to unpack like, but what has made you think that way what has formed that in you? And honestly, a lot of the times it leads to questions about mom and dad, you know, and it leads to opportunities to talk about mom and dad and it leads to opportunities to talk about church. So like the biggest one that I've dealt with is a, is a girl who, yeah, like wears literally <laughs> head to toe, would wear like sweats in a sweatshirt and never exposed her body and that was because of something that she like swallowed at age 10. So we talked a lot about what was that you know revival that you went to at age 10 and what was being fed to you and how can we like process through like what does it look like to live both in freedom but right now you're actually not living in freedom because you're living in chains in chains to what it was that was spoken you know over you at that point. So asking a lot of questions and just having space for them to be in process and not necessarily having like a buttoned up answer, I think mm-hmm. has been helpful. Yeah. Um, I, I think know. a
0: lot of the people we've dealt with, um, a lot of it comes from a reaction against the church background that they came from mm-hmm. that maybe had an unhealthy, um, emphasis on modesty and yeah. a, an agnostic way of kind of devaluing embodiment. So I think for us, mm-hmm. um, of talking about the body as like it's actually a beautiful gift it is and like we can't um be gnostic in terms of like having a, a unhealthy view of embodiment but we also don't want to swing the pendulum to the other extreme where like sexuality is the only level with which the value of our bodies can be expressed and that's what the society around them is saying that actually sexuality going back to the whole sexual identity thing it's risen to this level of like it's a it's a major way I express my identity. um, But that's not the only value that embodiment can be expressed. And we can be body positive as evangelical Christians without being kind of sexual libertines. And so that's kind of a balance we need to strike better, I think, in our churches.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think where you talked about um, giving them responsibility and accountability, um, but the fact that by nature they're going to fall out or then they're, they're not going to come through. Right. How do you build a church? How do you get a church serving and engaging with millennials that in a sense probably are going to constantly let you down? How do you, yeah. how do you build a church like that?
0: Yeah, really good question because it's true. And we've actually dealt with this um, recently with um, a single who's been in our life group and we've really kind of developed him and kind of groomed him to be a leader and we pushed him to like be a leader And we kind of vouched for him with this position of leadership in our church. And he's kind of let let us down in terms of not uh, carrying through on what he committed to. And so it goes back to the commitments. Like, if you make a commitment to lead, like, you need to do it. And we've been pretty hard, and we've talked tough to him on this. It's like, dude, we, like, vouched for you. We we, we were, like, wanting you to be an example for the other singles in the church, that you can be a fully-fledged member. Uh, And yet, yeah, he's kind of flaky. And a lot of millennials are flaky. So I think that's, on one hand, it's kind of a, just a given. It's kind of the, the price we pay for wanting to give opportunities for millennials to serve. Um, but I think you just need to lay out the expectations very clearly with millennials beforehand that say, like, hey, we're not going to give you this responsibility unless you can like, give us your word that you're going to follow through and that you're not going to like move across the country in six months because you know, another opportunity arises. Um, so I think we need to do both and. We need to give them opportunities, um, but also recognize that they are a little more um, fluid just by the virtue of their life stage. Like, we can't count on them to be fixed there necessarily the whole time. But we cannot, our churches can be edified by, by short-term commitments, I think, mm-hmm. at times. Yeah. But it's hard.
1: Yeah. How, do, uh, how do millennials view uh, relationships outside of their,
0: of their age groups, and mm. what kind of stereotypes could mm. um, older Christians try to break if they're trying mm. to to mentor or work with millennials? Mm.
1: Mm. Good question.
0: I, need to hmm.
1: I think one of the things I've seen is they actually don't know like how would, how would they be useful to you? Like, how is them showing up to church on Sunday useful to you? And I think they just don't necessarily, like, know, um, like, one of the examples that I'm thinking about is this girl in our life group who, like, she, one of the reasons why she doesn't come to church often on Sundays is because she just doesn't think that the church is going to miss her. Like, what role does she really have on a Sunday morning? And I've tried to speak over, like, Look, on a Sunday morning, you actually have more freedom in the room to go minister like prayer wise and encouragement wise because you don't have kids that you're like chasing after. So show up on church to be, you know, to go up to you and to ask, like, how can they pray for you? And I think one of the things that we can teach them or how can we um, how can we teach them that they need you is to honestly just re-encourage that whole thing of like showing up and realizing that there is actually something that they bring to you. Because, um, again, they want to be useful and helpful. Yeah. I don't know. That w- that's one idea that comes Yeah, around. I would also
0: say that any mentoring-type relationship needs to be, to some extent, both ways. Yeah. And so it shouldn't only just be you as the baby boomer, like, speaking into the millennial and kind of telling them what to do or not to do. Like, they that's have good. things that they can teach you, and I think they're going to get a lot more out of it if they can see how their relationship is benefiting you. Kind of like Kira said um, and so we often try to push millennials like out of their comfort zone relationally, like, yeah, befriend that like working class baby boomer that you have l- nothing in common with. And you'll see kind of the beauty of the church in a microcosm in that relationship, kind of forcing yourself to learn how to do life with people who are different. Um, yeah. I'm mm-hmm. by And I read a book recently by Barry Corey. Okay. called Love, Kindness, and yeah. he was saying a lot of the things you're saying about the d- the decline of love and kindness in mm. the church and, mm. and, and all mm. of the values that, mm-hmm. um, well, I'm not sure we had these values to a large degree before, but there certainly seems to be a deficit right now mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. The, in the climate. And I was wondering how Biola University had changed mm. as he was president for a large num- a number of years, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Brett can actually speak to that probably best. He works in the president's office. He works at Biola as mm-hmm. well and kind of helped um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: edit parts yeah. of that book. But yeah. Yeah. I Brett mean, I think the one that.
0: thing I'll say about that book, Love Kindness, which I would recommend um, and I'm not just speaking as the president's like communications director, which I am. So I should be pushing his <laughs> book. for him. <laughs> um, but it, it legitimately is a good book. And I think. The, the phrase in that book that he uses that I think is so helpful is, we need to have a firm center and soft edges as Christians. And it's the whole like truth and grace. And millennials often, they love the soft edges and the grace piece, and that's kind of where a lot of them would gravitate, whereas maybe baby boomers or like the older generation would cling to the truth and the hard center. Um, but we need both, and so that's where we can learn from each other. And millennials can maybe help the... The older generation realize, like, you need to have a little softer edges in your tone and how you talk about these things. Um, But I think the older generation, like, you guys need to speak the truth over millennials. Mm -hmm. And, like, don't be afraid of that. They need to be reminded that it's important that we cling to our convictions as Mm -hmm. Christians. And there's actually a way to love people by not necessarily affirming everything they do. And so we can hold to our truth and also do it with love and grace. And that's a, a. a really important balance for millennials to get right. What's that? Love Kindness, It's the book. Yeah, maybe in the the very back. Yeah.
2: I'm a little nervous to ask this question, but I'm just gonna say it. (laughs) In our context, what we struggle with is the black millennials. Mm -hmm. uh, Finding their place in the narrative Mm. when you have movements like black liberation. Mm -hmm and Pan-African movements, Mm. and I myself having come out of a phase of struggling with that, and Mm. everything you see, you're just not included in the narrative. So what we are finding Mm. is a rejection of the Christian narrative because it seems dated. Mm -hmm. It seems very sexist and oppressive. Mm -hmm. And when you go to your granny's church, the black church, it seems the doctrine is not sound. And then when you go to these attractional churches, it's far different than what you grew up with. Yeah. And then when you come to places like this, you're just the minority. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you find as a, as a black millennial, you're going, this this doesn't work yeah. anymore. Yeah. And um, so, and you've got all these new liberation movements and yeah. you've got your hoteps and you're used to be Christians now. So mm-hmm. how do you? speak to that end Mm -hmm. when when the author the people that are writing and giving the information are white people
0: right yeah that's a really good question and um uh yeah i mean we can talk more after but I, i do think that this is a big issue for the church and millennials care a lot about social justice and racial justice and racial equality and this is something that um the older generation of um christians particularly white evangelical christians haven't really been great at in terms of elevating the importance of these issues Um, i mean even this week i don't know if anyone's been following the southern baptists are having their convention right now and there's a a huge explosive rift happening happening in terms of those who really want to push for like condemning the alt-right and the racist kind of aspects that are happening in america and then some southern baptists are really apathetic about that apparently so as the church we have to wrestle with like Where do we fit in and where the there's there's logical gospel entry points to the justice conversation and the racial unity um, conversation. So um, yeah, I mean, there's a ton we could say on that. Um, But I also think the identity piece like identity politics is becoming kind of the new religion in America in the world. And so it's not only sexual identity, but racial identity. Everyone is just identifying in their little their group and it's a fight over who's being persecuted the most and whose rights are being trampled on the most and so this is another area where as christians we need to really speak the truth of union with christ that is our primary identity you know how do we put our primary identity first and like still have these conversations of our different kind of lenses that we look at life because of our backgrounds but we don't elevate it to the way that secular culture kind of elevates those different layers of identity all right, we should probably wrap up. So. But was, oh, Nick, Nick this. Just in, um, you,
1: you mentioned the consistency when it came to sexual ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you used the example of divorce. And mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in terms of commitment, mm-hmm. how have you felt millennials respond when it seems like in churches we give a lot more latitude to families? Mm-hmm. Um, it was my son's soccer game. I was at my daughter's recital. Right. Um, and it seems a little unfair, right. uh, she was at her show. Um, do, you, do you find that as something that comes up uh, or, or not really?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is like, that's one example of where millennials would see kind of inconsistency. And um, another thing that Kira and I talk about al- sometimes is like, um, we need to be careful that like Mother's Day and Father's Day and these secular holidays aren't a bigger deal in our churches than like the Christian holidays, like the day of Pentecost or like, you know, um, (laughs) Easter and Good Friday and Ash Wednesday. Like, why does Mother's Day get more attention in our church than than like Ash Wednesday or like Good Friday? Like that shows how the ethics of like American kind of family values and like the idolatry of blood relations that Kira mentioned earlier has, t- has infiltrated the church and made us more compelled by that than the church, our identity as the eternal body of Christ. Um, so we just need to be careful in all of our decisions that we make in terms of making sure that we're making the decisions as Christians and not out of our culture or the ways that society values things. Mm-hmm. And I think millennials will really resonate with that. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll feel seen and heard more when there's mindfulness given to those little things. Mm-hmm. Um, even as like, a couple without kids like Mother's Day and Father's Day is kind of like yeah we you know, we celebrate it but it's like we're not included in that so be mindful of those things any any other last questions we'll be up here afterwards but thanks for being here and we've enjoyed talking with you